Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. The most performed wedding song of the decade of the 80s and 90s. Dan Fogelberg died recently with cancer uh, about a year ago, <clears throat> and I saw a, a video of one of his later concerts, actually about a year before he died, and, and uh, he was thanking everybody for longer. He said, longer paid a lot of bills for me. <laughs> he said, the, everybody that bought longer through the 80s and 90s to do at their weddings um, kept, you know, kept me okay. There's a, there's a line in that song <clears throat> uh, that some of you may remember. But I think it's a great line. I think it's fitting for what we're looking at here tonight, especially. Says through the years as the fire starts to mellow, burning lines in the book of our lives, though the binding cracks and the pages start to yellow, I'll be in love with you. And isn't that what we want? Isn't, isn't, don't we want our marriages to stand the test of time? We want relationships to stand the test of time. Um, that's where we're going with this with this study of family. Um, and by the way, the, the title of this series is not Family Matters; it's Family matters. And I hope you see through this, uh, this, these next eight weeks, um, I, I, I can't effectively, as effectively as I would like to, instill within you this, this warrior mentality that recognizes the attack that's on family, that recognizes the attack that's on your family, my family, uh, saved families, lost families, any family that looks like or closely resembles what the scripture has to say is under attack. And I want to urge you not to be divisive, but to be aggressive, if that makes sense to you. Uh, I want to urge you not to, be, not, not to, to belittle and, and, and put down and attack. But boy, I want to urge you to have a spine and defend family because it's under attack. And our, our enemy is, uh, can probably easily be pointed to by Christians in our culture as uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation or the American Civil Liberties Union or where, you name the organization or the individual. But I would submit to you, those aren't our enemies. The enemy is our enemy. He's using pawns and minions and organizations around our country and around our world to incrementally attack the family structure and try and break it down. But our enemy, Lucifer, our enemy, the devil, our enemy is the enemy and, and he's the only enemy we have. In fact, all those folks have hearts that need to know Jesus and hearts that can change. Um, and I hope by what they see out of how rare and how, how stark in contrast with our culture, families, Christ-like families that are working, I hope they see that as a, as a clarion, as something to hold up to say, man, I, I remember when, that, when life used to be like that, and maybe we need to get back to that again. Because what we, our definition over here and what we think family ought to be, and this, this all-inclusive, this, this kumbaya, all come, be what you want, believe what you want, that hadn't worked very well. I hope we realize that sooner rather than later. Um, I hope my prediction to you about four or five weeks ago that we were probably no less than two and a half to three generations away from worshiping in secret in this community or in this country. Um, that, is, that is only a symptom of a greater problem. That, if that comes, and I hope it doesn't, but that, if that comes, will be a telltale sign that the family has broken down and that our culture is crumbling around us. 
So I want you to see, uh, boy, just a, if I could suit you up with armor, and I hope these, eight, these next eight weeks will arm, arm you in the, in the sense of Scripture. But I, if I could suit you up with armor to understand the war that you're engaged in and the attack that's, that's coming after your family, after your relationships, after your kids, after your husband, after your wife, after your parents, after your friends, after their families, um, it's coming. Now, as, as we start this, I realize that we have folks here who are single, who are divorced, who are widowed, who, um, you know, what are we going to do, do with all this these next eight weeks? I want to encourage you to come to see and hear. Uh, well, first of all, it's not all about marriage. There's, we're going to do some parenting things, too, and, and some, some what the Scripture says about discipline and about kids and how kids need to respond to their parents. So it's going to be two parents, two kids, two, uh, two, two married couples to all of us. Um, but I hope those of you who are single, who are whether you're divorced or widowed or, or just single, period, can see that when families crumble, we all crumble. Our culture crumbles. And so uh, if, you can, if I can put you on a mission through this study, it's to refresh again how you need to pray for families. Uh, whether you're single or whether you're married or whether you're, whatever your situation is, we need to pray that, um, that God causes us to become a defender, become a stalwart of that which is right and biblical and true as it relates to families. So anyway... Um, <clears throat> Harris, the Harris Polling Company did a did a poll in 2000, <clears throat> and 97% they polled college students. 97% of college students said having a close knit family was the key to happiness. Blew me away that the number was that high. Ten years previous to that, in 1990, Harris did the same poll, and that came back at 82%. You know what that's telling me? The ones who are, defect, who are affected by broken homes the most are saying it's the most important thing there is. Stark. Stark in our culture. I think that, that, that college-age kids, and that's probably increasing since 2000 even. But those who are affected the most by, by families crumbling and breaking around us are the ones who are saying it needs to be fixed. And how, what do I do to, to fix it? What do I do to make sure my family is, is prevented and shielded and guarded from some of those kinds of things? So... We're going to be primarily in Ephesians 5. Turn there, if you will, um, if you have your Bible. If not, it'll be on the screen. We're going to be making reference back to these verses. We're going to be in various scriptures, and we will be tonight, in fact. But we're going to be coming back to Ephesians 5 and 6, the latter part of Ephesians 5 and the first part of Ephesians 6, uh, for these next, next eight weeks. And I hope if you have friends, um, you know, as, as we talked a few weeks ago about this idea of our, our going one-to-one and reaching somebody and our doubling our attendance by the year's end, I hope if you have friends who are struggling in their relationships, marriage relationships, parenting, who are struggling as parents, that you'll get them here. Um, or at least send them to the website to, to pick up and, and glean off, off of some of these messages. Um, in Ephesians 5, we're going to pick up in verse 22. Um, or actually, let's pick up in verse 21, and then we'll read through uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 4. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that's the foundation for what, everything that's about to occur here. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own flesh, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, I want us to focus on two things tonight that are really going to probably sound rather simplistic to you, but I think have great substance and depth in the Scripture. One, the first one, is that marriage is a covenant. And I want you to turn with me, if you will. This won't be on the screen. Well, maybe it will. Maybe I put this. Uh, is the Malachi, did I put the Malachi Scripture in there? Malachi. Malachi. Yeah, Mal- Malachi chapter 2. Um, we'll pick up in verse, verse 13 and read through verse 15 of Malachi chapter 2. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Now, perhaps you've never really thought through or considered marriage as covenant, but that's the way God looks at it. I hope hope that Malachi scripture will jump off the page to you to say, You've, you've forsaken a covenant. The reason I'm not answering your prayers anymore, the reason it feels like your prayers are not getting above the ceiling anymore, the reason you're not seeing me come through for, for you any, like you'd like to is you've broken covenant with your wife. And you need to reaffirm that covenant and, and your oneness together with her. Well, I want us to look at a couple, two or three things that are true about covenants. Um, the covenant is, the concept of covenant is first mentioned, of course, in the Old Testament. Um, the Lord made covenants with Noah and with Abraham. A covenant is, first of all, a vow. Um, and it's a vow that is initiated by God, but it, it begins, every covenant begins with a vow. And, and God vowed to Noah that he would never destroy the earth again by water. He told him what to do. Build the ark. Get your family into the ark. Get, the, get the, the animals and all into the ark. And so he makes this vow with him and keeps this vow um, to him. He makes a vow with Abraham that you're descendants are going to number beyond the sands of the seashore, beyond anything countable. And he makes this vow with Abraham as a holy covenant with Abraham, just as he makes the vow with Noah as a holy covenant with him. Covenants are also ratified in the scripture by blood. Um, in fact, when, when the, the, the waters dissipate and the ark comes to rest, one of the first things Noah does when he gets out of the ark is build an altar to the Lord and makes a blood sacrifice to the Lord as a ratification of this covenant that he made with him. Abraham does the same thing, ratifies this covenant with blood. 
He did so with animals. He does so even, as we looked at uh, a couple of months ago, with taking his son, Isaiah, up the mountain to sacrifice his son, and God provides another way, provides a ram, and the shed blood of the ram ratifies the covenant. But the third thing about a covenant is not only is there a vow, and not only is it ratified by blood, but there's a sign associated with it, with every covenant. And God gave Moses that sign of the rainbow. He said, when you see the rainbow in the sky, you'll, that'll be a reminder to you and to your offspring, and his offspring are you and I sitting here tonight, be a reminder to all of you that I'll no longer ever destroy the earth with water again. That sign. He gives Abraham a sign as well and says, to circumcise all the male children that are born into your nation as a sign of my covenant with you that your descendants will be innumerable. Well, our covenants today, our marriage covenants today, start with a vow. You and I have been to, to those services where do you, so-and-so, take such and such as your, do you agree to, will you, are you, yes, I do, yes, I will. And we make those vows to each other in front of others, but more importantly, in front of God and to each other. Those vows are usually as well sealed by a, a coming together of husband and wife. Hopefully that's on a honeymoon. But coming together as one, as a husband and wife, to consummate that vow, that we come together as one in blood in part, uh, eventually, as we have offspring of kids, and that's what he was talking about in Malachi. Our blood runs through our veins and through us into our offspring. But we come together in, in a communal fashion to ratify that, that same covenant. And then, and then finally, the, the ring that you and I have uh, on our finger uh, is this sign of, that, that we, are, we are husband and wife. Um, tell a quick story about that. Hannah, on her last trip to the plastic surgeon after her wreck, which was, which was several months ago, she um, sent Leanne and I an email saying, well, I was just, I don't know, something, and we were just holding out hope that, that I would go in on the, one of these trips. He would say, you did this and this and this, and your scar is going to go away. You never have a scar on your head again. And she said, you know, after leaving his office, he said, boy, you've done great. Boy, your scar looks great. You, you've been faithful to put that vitamin E on there, and, it, and it's, it's, I think it's going to heal up fine. And, and uh, you've really done a great job. And as you, as you get older, it's going to be in one of the wrinkled lines of your forehead. You'll never even notice it. And, and you've, you've done a really good job. And she has. And it, it's, it's virtually unnoticeable now. But she notices it every day because she looks in the mirror and sees this, this scar on her forehead every day. And so she said, you know, I was just holding out hope that he would say this, this, and this, and your scar is going to go away. And she said, as I was driving back to my office from the, from the last visit, I was reminded, I think, by the Lord, that love always leaves a mark. And she said, after my wreck, you and Mom were here in just a few hours to love on me. Janet was here almost immediately to love on me. Many of my friends here in Nashville, the Girl State friends, and other, were around to love on me, brought things by my house. My friend Katie from Memphis, my college roommate, came over and stayed with me for several days to love on me and help me with my medicine and Family and friends just came around me and, and expressed love in ways that I'd never experienced before. And uh, she said, you know, I, as I think about the hands and feet of Christ, uh, there being marks there in, in, in his hands and feet to, as a reflection of his love for us. And she said, you know, you can also take a wedding band off, but there's a mark where that band was. You can, you can take it off all you want to, but there's still a mark there. She said, and that's, as I'm looking at that mark of love on my forehead... Um, maybe that's God saying to me, reminding me over and over again every day how much I'm loved. And as, I, as we think about those, those kinds of signs and symbols that, that mark our marriage and seal our marriage, they say something. They should say something to somebody else. That we've made a covenant. We've made a vow. 
And that covenant and vow is holy. It goes beyond just cultural convenience. It's a holy covenant and a holy vow. Um, the, in fact, the word in the, in the Old Testament, the Greek word or Hebrew word for covenant in the Old Testament is hesed. And the, in the, I, I can't speak Hebrew very well, but the H is ch, like the chesed. And it is, it is described as a loyal, undying love. A loyal, undying covenant. In essence, you can do whatever you want. You're never going to break the covenant. You're never going to separate it. You can run from it. You can bury it. You can hide it. It's still going to be sound. It's still going to be true. It's still going to be intact regardless of what you do. That's what Hesed means. And that's the very thing that he describes in Malachi as well as this covenant that you, that you have between each other. It's a Hesed covenant. It is a God-like covenant that God has made with man that you're making with each other. It needs to be that solid and that strong. The second thing, though, is this, is that not only is marriage a covenant, marriage has a blueprint. Genesis 2, 24 lays that blueprint out for us. I'm going I'm to give you a, a better look at it in just a minute, but, but that scripture says <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 2, 24, and we'll be making references to the second chapter of Genesis for the next several weeks, but this verse says, for this reason, and it's mentioned here in Ephesians 5 as well, this same verse, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, we see three things in this verse. The three things we see in this verse are, first of all, leaving, secondly, cleaving, and thirdly, one flesh. Now, the leaving is stepping away from, coming away from whatever baggage, good or bad, there was in the home that we came from. And every one of you has a default point. I've said this over and over again as I've taught couples classes and marriage conferences and things over the years, that each of us have a default system. And that default system, whether we look at it as good or look at it as bad, it's still there. It's inescapable. And until, unless we decide something different, something, a different avenue, we're going to go back to that same default system, good or bad. And the default system is what you and I saw and experienced in the home we grew up in. We saw marriage that either worked or didn't work. We saw marriage that either looks like Ephesians 5 and 6 or didn't. We saw marriage, we saw parenting uh, skills and relationships that either worked or didn't work. And so as we take those into our own homes, into our own marriages, into into our new relationships, we take those either willingly or in some cases reluctantly. And I say reluctantly because if we don't come up with another plan that either looks like Scripture or looks like someone else that we've used as a model or as a mentor that's worked, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go back to the default system. We're going to default back to what we've seen and what we've known. You think we would do that all over again and make those same mistakes? People do it generation after generation after generation, making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Why? Because that's all they've seen. That's all they know. And until they see something else and understand something else, whether it's from Scripture, whether it's from a family that's trying to live godly in front of them or not, they're going to do the same thing they've seen until they've seen something else and make a decision to move in that direction, make a conscious decision, I'm not going to be this kind of wife. This is the kind of wife I'm going to be. I'm not going to be this kind of father. This is the kind of father I'm going to be. Until I make a conscious decision about the father and the husband, I'm going to be, you know what? I'm going to be George. George is a good one. I don't mind being him. But there's some things that I want to be better than George on. I'll, there's some things you want to be better than your parents, more God-like, more Christ-like, even maybe than they are or were. So, but until you make a decision that that's who I want to be, I'm going to go back to the default system that I've always seen. And always known. If that's good, great. Grab those things. Grab those values. If they've worked and you've seen them and they, you, you've meshed them with Scripture and they match up, use them. Don't throw them away. 
bring those same value systems, bring that same priority system into your own marriages and into your own homes, the same discipline system into your own marriages and into your own homes if they've worked and if they look like God's Word. Use them. Don't discard them. Don't just discard them because they're past. Because if they're past and they're good, redo them. Reclaim them. Regurgitate them. Um, But that's a hard thing for some folks. It's a hard thing for some folks to leave what I've known and head into something new. Head into something that's unknown. Head into something that's unpredictable. Head into something that really kind of scares me a little bit. So rather than be scared, rather than be intimidated, I'll go back to what I've always seen. I know my mom was not the kind of wife she needed to be to my dad, or my dad was not the kind of husband he needed to be to my mom. I know that. But this is scary. This unknown, the unknown part of here is scary. So this is known, even though it's not very good. It's, I know it, and I can predict the outcome. I can't predict anything over here. And I'm going to tell you, that is, that's, that's a scary thing that most young families and most young couples go through. And, and whether you're there now or whether you're going to have kids there or whether you have kids there now, you're, you're going to go through some of those same kinds of things to say, I don't know about this. I don't know about the unknown. I love them, and I want to get married, or we want to have kids, or I want to... Boy, the unknown part of this scares me a little bit. Am I going to go back and look like this model over here? And I would encourage you to, to as much as you can, leave and form and forge new ideas, new ways of doing things that look like God's Word. Now, if they look like the home, as I said a moment ago, that you came from, great. Reinforce them again. But don't use that as a default system. Use Scripture as a default system. If you'll do that, we'll be healthy. Now, the second thing is this cleaving part. Um, and literally, if you can get something in your mind's eye, it's a, it's a white-knuckled grip on a relationship that says, <clears throat> I'm not letting go. I don't care what comes, I'm not letting go. Don't know the adversity that's even coming, but it may be harsh, it may be easy, regardless I'm hanging on. I've got a white-knuckled grip onto the relationship with him, with her, and I'm not letting go regardless of what happens. Now, <clears throat> if there is a backup plan, if there is in, in, in your mind's eye or in, in your kid's mind's eye or in your grandkid's mind's eye as they go into marriage, if there's a backup plan, you know what? They're going to use it. They're going to put it into place. If there's an escape plan, they're going to always be looking for it when adversity comes. If there's a cleave mentality that you can sow into them, if there's a cleave mentality that says, you go work it out. I don't care how hard it gets. You go work it out. Go deal with it. That's what they're going to do. But until that's sown into them, they're going to do the things they've seen, and they're going to take the easy way out. Leanne and I were about a year or so into our marriage, a little over a year into our marriage, when we had one of these cleave moments. And we had our first knockdown, dragout fight. Nobody got knocked down or drug out, by the way. But, but it was our, our first probably serious fight that we ever had. And, uh, and neither of us remember what it was about to this day. Sounds pretty important, doesn't it? Uh, but neither of us remember to this day what it was about. But she, was, she goes in the bedroom. She's, I've, I've got her in tears over something. And she goes in the bedroom and pulls out a suitcase out of the closet. She starts putting clothes in. And I, go, I walk in there. What are you doing? I'm going to mom's. So I go grab me a suitcase out of the closet. And I'm sitting on the bed, and I start putting my clothes in, too. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to your mom's, too. And she kind of looks at me like, are you nuts? And I said, if you're going to your mom's, I'm going to your mom's. If you're staying here, you can't get rid of me. The word, this, you can't, there's no place you can run that I'm not going to be there. If you go to your mom's, I'm going to find you at your mom's. You can go someplace else, I'll find you someplace else. You can't shake me. We're going to work this out either at your mom's or here. So where are we going to work it out? And, and that's, that's exactly the thing I'm talking about to say, 
There's, there's got to be a white-knuckled grip on relationships in our day and time because they're being attacked by the enemy to say, eh, chuck it. It's too hard. Maybe the next one will work. He looks, he, th- that marriage over there looks like it may. Go be friends with them. Chuck this relationship. Chuck these. And I will tell you, the enemy, is, he's, he's incremental. He's, he's, he's divisive. He's sneaky. He's covert about the way that he works in us and the way he works in relationships around us. Uh, some relationships around us are terrible because they feed a crumbling marriage. Uh, it, it amazes me how many conversations go on man to man that's negative about women and woman, women to women that's negative about men all the time. I mean, it's just like it's a natural part of life. And we as believers should stand up and say, no, <laughs> maybe that's how, that's how you live, but that's not the way my home looks like. And that's not, not, not the way it's supposed to look like. Maybe that's the man you married, but that's not the man I married. And that's not the way homes are designed to be. And I'm not going to be a party to that kind of conversations. But cleaving is that very thing. It's, it's that white knuckled grip that says, no, I'm not. We're working it out at moms or we're working it out here, but we're working it out. And, and I'm going to tell you, moms and, and dads and grandmoms and granddads encourage cleaving. <laughs> Get them back out. If they run to you, push them back. <laughs> push them back home. Say, go, back, go work it out. That's your issue. I'll, I'll help you. I'll pray for you. I'll encourage you. But you can't live here. Now, let me, let me back up and say this as a, as a parenthesis to all of this teaching. If there's abuse going on in the situation, physical or emotional, get out. Don't stay there under abuse. Don't ever, stay, don't ever tolerate abuse, um, especially physical abuse. Go to moms. Go somewhere as quick as you can go. Um, but short of abuse, hard times come in marriages. We, we need to, as parents and as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as people who care, Kick kids back into the home. It's like, get, you get back in there and work it out. It's tough. It's hard. But get back in there and work it out. That's what, exactly what you need to do. Don't run every time you see, a, see adversity. Get back in there and work it out. Is it hard? Yeah. Will you have to, to kind of compromise some? Probably. But get back in there and work it out. You need to work those relationships out. Now, this third thing, this idea of not only leaving and cleaving, but becoming one, one flesh has a couple of connotations to it. It is, it is obviously physical, one flesh. It's, it is physical in nature in, in the sense that we come together, husbands and wives are to come together and, and consecrate their marriage together physically in physical intimacy, in intercourse, in sex. And, and folks, Hollywood didn't invent that. God did. In fact, Hollywood didn't invent, even invent it being fun. Go back and look at Song of Solomon and read Song of Solomon and see the kind of fun that sex is supposed to be. In marriage now, to see the kind of fun that sex is supposed to be. God designed it. He invented it. He invented it to be not only reproductive, but he invented it to be pleasurable. And so as we're, this idea of, of our coming together as one, I want us to see in, in a couple, two or three different lights. But um, let, me, let me throw this out here, especially in light of, of Dan Fogelberg's song, Longer. If your intimacy with your mate, and this applies to whether, you know, Jerry and June's been married 150 years, and some of us have been married less than that. Close. If, if your intimacy with your mate is not growing better, the longer you go, something's wrong. And, and I would submit to you that it's one of two things that are wrong. Either it's communication is not effective, or my motive is wrong, one or the other. And communicating about intimacy and about sex and about pleasure and about those kind of things are, is not bad. It's not evil. It's not sinful. It's not... We need to do that as husband and wife. We need to communicate with husband and wife was about this is, well, several things. One is this is what ramps me up to where I'm ready to, to be intimate with you. 
and it's totally different male to female. Females need emotionally an emotional ramp up. Males oftentimes need a physical or 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 a a, a visual ramp up. But there's not there's not too much is assumed in most kinds of physical relationships that aren't working. And the reason too much is assumed is we're not communicating effectively to each other. Here's what works for me, and you're not doing it very well. So why don't you try this, and this will work for me better. And consequently, this is working better for me. So why don't we try this, and this will work. And those kind of conversations, I'm going to tell you, will make it, will make it better, will make your intimacy more pleasurable. But also, I want to get to, to this other thing that may not be working as well as communication. That's motive. Motive? In sex? What are you talking Yes. Until your motive becomes your partner's pleasure above your own, you'll never experience intimacy like God intended for you to experience it. When that starts to occur, when you start to seek your partner's pleasure above your own, you'll see God do some things in your intimacy physically with each other that you've not experienced before. Um, and I, I would submit to you to say that those are kinds of things that should, should go better with age. Uh, you know, and mileage and experience and, and, and those kinds of things. And so as you communicate more effectively, as your motive changes to where, you know, I'm okay, but my pleasure, my, my joy is to please her. My joy is to please him in this, not me. And I start to, I stop seeking my own pleasure and start seeking the partner's pleasure. Then my own becomes even greater. And so that's something that comes with mileage. And that's why I say to you, if you've been down the road a while and it's not getting any better for you, I would submit one of, two, one of those two things is probably an issue. Either you're not communicating effectively about it, or your motive's wrong. Your motive is your own pleasure instead of your partner's. Second thing, though, is, is, um, is this metaphor that he uses for, not, not just physical, but this metaphor that he uses for, for unity. And I want us to look at this really from, from three different perspectives. In fact, I want us to look at this whole idea of a blueprint graphically. Uh, Mike, throw up that triangle. This is, in essence, what he's describing in... Genesis 2.24, and especially as it comes to this idea of our being one flesh. Our being one flesh not only is our being one flesh with each other as woman and man, as husband and wife, but understanding that this is better when this is working. When we are where we need to be with God relationally, it's so much easier for me as a husband, as a father, to be where I need to be with my mom or with my wife, with my kids. If I am as a, as a wife or as a mother not being very effective with, with my husband or with my kids, it's likely the fact that this vertical relationship with him is not what it needs to be. And so when this is patched up, when this is healed, when this is where it needs to be, when I'm pursuing him the way I need to pursue him, my pursuit of my spouse will be far easier and far less, uh, far le- there's far less friction there. When my, when my relationship vertical is as good as my relationship horizontal. And when you, when you can, and I, I just like to look at things visually, when you can get that kind of image in your head as it relates to your relationship with your husband or wife, you're getting a clear picture of what Genesis 2.24 is about, of God's blueprint and how he's designed for this to work. Now, this oneness, I think he's, he's talking about in body, in soul, and in spirit. you got some blanks out there, and I know all you blank fillers are really anxious to fill these blanks in, so let me give you analyticals, what you need to write down. Out beside the word body, write passionate lovers. We've talked about that just a moment ago, to say, this is good. It's not something evil. Uh, now, the, the picture Hollywood's painted as if, you know, they're the ones that thought of sex. No, God thought of this at creation. And in fact, he, the, the, verse 25 of, of Genesis chapter 2 says that Adam and Eve were naked and they weren't ashamed. I mean, they were standing there totally naked and weren't ashamed. Why? Because God designed them to desire each other. 
God didn't design them to be naked, to be ashamed of who they were and how He had made them. He made them perfect, and they saw and experienced that before the fall. So, this idea of of our being passionate lovers is something God designed, not someone else. And so, as we love each other in body, those are the things we should think about. Um, talk, let me let me encourage you to do this too. If you have a relationship with someone who's ahead of you on the marriage path, talk to them. If they'll share with you. A lot of older folks won't, but some will. If they'll share with you, talk with them about intimacy. You can get some great pointers on, here's some things that's worked for us. Here's some things that I never even considered that, that has been helpful you know, to, to, for my wife to, to get her emotionally ready to have sex with me and, and, and us enjoy a, a night of passion together. Here's some things that have worked for my husband. Here's some things that I, I realize now. It took me 20 years to realize he's a visual animal, that I need to visually stimulate him. And I thought I was fat all these years. And here I am. You know, the more fat I put in front of him, the more, more attracted he is to me. And so I didn't realize that all these years. And so here he is coming after me now after 25, 30, 40 years of marriage. Here, here he comes. And I didn't, you know, I've been, I should have been doing this years ago. And so as, if you'll talk to some older couples, they'll tell you, get over, get over yourself. Get over what your, what your inhibitions are about this, that, or the other, and move toward each other. And so you'll get some great advice and counsel probably. But secondly, though, not only is, is this idea of passionate lovers in body, but soul. And out beside the word soul, right, mind, will, or emotions. Mind, will, or emotions. In essence, you're looking at each other as best friends. They were not only physically naked and unashamed, they were relationally and emotionally naked with each other and unashamed. That's even harder sometimes than the, than the physical nakedness is that I don't, know that I, can, I don't know that I can share my heart, my soul, my dreams with, with him or with her. That's a hard thing to do sometimes, isn't it? Especially if, if this is true. And, and take the counsel I'm going to give you here in just a moment with a grain of salt because it's not from Scripture, but it's from some mileage in relationship. Here's my counsel to you. If you've got a same-sex friend that is a deeper friend to you than your spouse, start the best you can to exchange that relationship. Start the best you can to move that same-sex friend. You don't have to cut them off totally out of your life. They've built trust with you, and you don't need to breach the trust. You just don't need to let them ever in as close as you let your spouse. That's a dangerous thing to do. I'm going to tell you why. I've counseled with too many couples over the last probably 10 to 12 years where that's been not the tool, but a tool that the enemy used. He used probably something else, a, a wandering eye or something. But, but that's a tool that the enemy used to drive a wedge between husband and wife. Is a relationship with a friend, and it may be, it may be a man, another male friend, a uh, uh, lady's another female friend, but a la- relationship with a friend that I can share with her things that I can never share with my husband. That's a dangerous road to start to go down. I want to encourage you if, you, if you're started down that road or been down it, and your, your relationship has suffered for it, that's probably a good reason why it's suffered for it, is that's been, a, that's been a source of friction and a source of relational problem for you for maybe years that you've never voiced to each other. But this whole idea of being, being transparent, being one, one flesh in soul, in mind, will, and emotions, and our being best friends. Um, and I, I can share with you from experience there, too, that there's nothing like that. But also, one in, finally, one in spirit. One in spirit. The best way I can describe that to you is this. <clears throat> and this is awfully rare too. Just write down brother or sister in Christ. That's probably the, the simplest way to, to do this. Very few people I've ever known see their spouse, look at their spouse as a, as a brother or sister in Christ. They look at friends that way. 
And they look at sometimes extended family members that way. But they, they don't look at spouse that way. And here's why. Oftentimes in many marriages that, has, that haven't started this way, it's very difficult down the road for husband and wife to start breaching spiritual conversation together. It's uncomfortable when you first start doing that. Now, when you first started out in marriage, everything's uncomfortable. I mean, you're trying to get to know each other, and here's the way they do laundry, and here's the way they do this, and they sleep on this side of the bed, and all everything's new. And so as you start in a new relationship, that's the greatest time to start spiritual oneness, to start this, this, this sense of being not only one in body and one in soul, but one in spirit, and being comfortable talking about spiritual things together. You would be amazed at the couples that are totally uncomfortable with that. They can talk about work. They can talk about family. They can talk about kids. They can talk about all kinds of things, but they never breed spiritual conversation with each other. And it's because they've never seen this sense of oneness that it brings when you do. Is it a hard thing to to do years down the road? Yeah. It's kind of hard to get started, but it's worth it. And I'm going to tell you, I don't care where your marriage is, if if that's something that's been a challenge for you, start, but start small. Start small in conversations, start small with each other, and start, just talk about the message. Or, or, you know, the, the very reason I give these things out to you every week and have you fill them out is hopefully they're a tool for either you're spending more time with the Lord in the week that comes up and, and going back and looking at some of these scriptures again. Man, he didn't even see this. I'm smarter than, than Tim is. He didn't even see this. And, the, and here's what God is starting to say. And here's what he's starting to scratch these spiritual itches in me. And I start talking about those kind of things with, with my spouse. And sooner or later we realize, gee, we're, we're more together in the way we think than we've ever been. What started that? Well, it started with a desire to be one. And, and it's amazing to me how many marriages don't seek oneness. They seek tolerance from each other. They seek, this. are we okay? Is everything okay? And man, they're so much better than okay. I, I want more than okay for you. And, and I, I know the Lord does as well. Anyway, if this little graphic helps you, then then take that and stick it on a wall somewhere or something. If it helps spur um, some ideas. But this, this idea of marriage being covenant and marriage being blueprint, of God having a blueprint to it, is pivotal. It's pivotal in relationships working. Because until I realize God's got a plan, I'm totally freaked out when I'm on my own. And I'm going to tell you, that's why many marriages crumble. is We're forced to go back to what we've known or what we don't know. And the pressure on us to make it work is immense. And I'm going to tell you, if we start to put some things in place relationally... Um, they will work, and God will honor his word in our life, and our marriages will start to reap the fruits of that, reap the benefits of that. It's, um, it's not accidental that God put man and woman in a garden, put them in a situation, placed temptation in front of them, and gave them their own will. None of that is accidental. Now, as I've shared with you before, and we, in fact, we shared as we were going through the book of Ephesians together last year, I shared with you, and I still believe this, and I hold this true over and over and over again. The most dangerous thing God knowingly did, knowingly ever did, was give man his own will. Why did he do that? Because he wanted man to have relationship with him out of, out of a desire, not out of some sense of forced loyalty, that you belong to me, so you've got to worship me. No, I want to want to worship him, and he wants that from me. So as he gave the man a will in the garden, we blew it. And as I, as I shared with you, uh, several weeks ago, too, um, Adam didn't, he didn't do a good job at a couple of things in the garden. He didn't do a good job at leading, and he didn't do a good job of establishing boundaries. We're going to get more into that a little bit next week. Um, next week's, the title of, ne- of next week's message, by the way, is, Is There a Man in the House? 
But he didn't do a very good job of creating boundaries, didn't do a very good job at leading. And when we do a good job at leading men and creating boundaries, I'm going to tell you, this: <laughs> there is never a wife on earth, never has been a wife on earth that will not eagerly, eagerly follow a man who looks like this, this scripture right here, who loves his bride like Christ loves the church. Submission and, and respect and following that kind of lead will never, ever, 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 ever be a problem for a woman who has a man like that, ever. Now, the problem is, <laughs> most men are not like that, are we? We don't look very much like this. We don't love like Christ loved the church. We don't love well at all. Maybe because we've not been shown how to love. Maybe because love's hard for us. Maybe because we're not speaking the same love language. Maybe, 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 maybe. And on that argument can go and we can start to blame somebody else to say, I just need to love well. If I love well, my marriage goes pretty well. If I don't love very well, nothing seems to work very well. More on that next week. But he knew what he was doing. He did a dangerous thing, and we blew it. And we're paying for it today because we blew it. But the problem was not that Eve said, here, have some fruit. <laughs> the problem was the man that Adam didn't say, no, not going there. You shouldn't either. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to get that sidetracked off. off on next week, but more's coming on that next week. Anyway, our culture, in our culture... Marriages have become more like arrangements than covenants. You know why? Because the divorce rate is equally high in the kingdom and outside the kingdom. Marriages have become arrangements. If they work, okay, we'll keep them. If they don't, it was an arrangement. (laughs) It wasn't a covenant. You know what a covenant does? A covenant cleaves with white knuckles to that relationship and said, it's not going anywhere. Job can crumble. Life can crumble. Church can crumble. Friends can crumble. My kids can get in trouble. It's not going anywhere. This relationship, we're hanging on to this. White knuckles. Arrangements don't do that. Arrangements say, mm, it was hard. You know, we we just couldn't we couldn't come together. We couldn't we couldn't agree on this. We couldn't agree. You'd be amazed at the things Leanne and I don't agree on. We get to talking about education and about a lot of and and. We, there's a lot of things we don't agree on, but we're deeply in love with each other. Why? Because we're committed to the covenant. We're committed to our marriage being covenant. We're committed to saying, man, I want to look like that. I don't look like that as much as I like, as much as I know I need to. And I, that's the desire of my heart. Not whoever I see on TV or whatever I read about in the magazine. Or the, not them. This is the desire of my heart. Not an arrangement. I don't, I don't want an arrangement. I'm tired of, I'm tired of arrangements and I'm tired of, of Arrangements give too many fingers opportunity to point blame somewhere else besides me. And my problem in my marriage is me. You know what your problem in your marriage is? It's you, most of the time. So if we can see this as covenant, well, I think we can sow a great legacy into generations behind us to see marriage, first of all, as covenant and to understand that God has a blueprint for it. Um, go back to Ephesians if you're someplace else, and I want us to look at these verses again. Um, the, the, the blueprint... Is what we've is 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 not necessarily what we've seen, but what God's word says. We may not have seen a good model. Some of you may have seen great models as you grew up, and I hope you had. I, well, I saw a great model of marriage and parenting as I grew up, and I'm I'm extremely grateful for it. In fact, I'm a, I'm a huge beneficiary of it. Some of you may not have seen great models, uh, but there are some models for you to follow, both in Scripture and in the kingdom, 
and I want to encourage you to, to look at some of those models and start to change what you see. Look, at, look in chapter 5 and want us to look at verses 21 to 33 again. Um, submit yourselves to one another. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives. Present yourself to her. Verse 29, after all, no one ever hated his own body. He feeds it. He cares for it. Just as Christ does the church. In, other, in essence, he gives himself away over and over and over and over again for the church. We're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. The two will become one flesh. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, this is a profound mystery. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about, he says, Christ and the church. What is this profound mystery? I think this profound mystery is this, is that we are drastically different, men and women, aren't we? We're just very different from each other. You know what what this mystery, I think, is? Is that God has designed us to work better together than alone. He's designed us to work better together than apart. In fact, if you, you can go back there later if you want to. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says this, it's not good for man to be alone. He just don't do well on his own. And I'm going to tell you, it's not. Not, not just man, most of us, period. I, I think that verse is probably mankind as well as man. Not only man, but mankind, but specifically man. But most of us don't do well on our own. We just don't. God, I think that the profound mystery is He's designed us to work better and fit better together than apart. He's designed us to be more complete together than alone. And I think that mystery is is a loud witness over and over and over again in our culture. You know why? Because everybody chucks marriage in our culture. And this profound mystery that not only can work, but should work and does work. Look at them. Look at them. It does work. I think that's a profound mystery in our culture because we're so individualistic in our culture. We're so me, we're so meet my needs, feed, you know, feed myself, make, make my will come true. Um, make, we are so in a me-centered culture that this profound mystery of our not being too good when we're on our own is true. And we know that when we're, we know that when we're on our own, both spiritually and, and relationally, um, that we do better together oftentimes than alone, Genesis 2.18 says. Well, how are we going to wrap this up? I, I want to encourage you to just to consider a couple of things. First of all, it's never too late to move from arrangement to covenant. If that's what your marriage looks like, if that's what some friends of yours' marriage looks like, if that's, if that's what your, your, your family members, extended family members, your kids, your grandkids, get word to them it's not too late to move from arrangement to covenant. Now, is it hard? Yeah, it is. It's going to be a hard road to move from arrangement to covenant. Because arrangements are pretty easy. Arrangements go back to this me-centered uh, sense of uh, meet my needs, make sure I'm happy, make sure I'm okay. And if things start be, stop being that way, then it's your fault, not mine. And so this profound mystery of our working better together than we do apart has a loud and resounding witness to it. And it's never too late to move in that direction. It is a challenge in our culture because our culture is so centered around arrangements than covenant. Boy, the idea of covenant is just foreign to our culture. The idea of a white-knuckle grip on relationships, on marriages, it's just foreign to our culture. They don't see it. They don't get it. Only those who know Christ will, I think, get and understand that. Now, those outside the kingdom can have great marriages. I'm not saying they can't. But only a believer can see the basis for all of that. Can see this idea of leaving, cleaving, and becoming one. Can see this blueprint that he's put together. It's not too late to go from arrangement 
to covenant. And no matter how far we've gone, we can get back to the blueprint. It's, it's scary to, for, for couples to go into marriage. Uh, and i got a daughter about to go into marriage. It's scary for couples to go into marriage and realize, i got no plan. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to eat. I don't know where we're going to live. I don't know what. It's scary for couples to go into to a marriage with no plan about those kind of things. Yet it amazes me how many couples go into marriage with no spiritual plan whatsoever. And that doesn't totally, totally wig them out. It should, especially if they grow up in Christian homes. And if they have Christian parents and Christian grandparents and Christian friends, we ought to be encouragers to them to say, start talking the same spiritual language early in your relationship. Don't let that be foreign to you. Come together, not only one in body, that's the easy part, but this one in mind, soul, and spirit, this being best friend, that's a little harder. And, 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 and being one together spiritually, that's even harder. To start to breathe spiritual things together and walk a, walk a common spiritual journey together, boy, that's hard. The enemy's going to come against that. He does it over and over and over again in marriages. I want you to see the importance of not only in your own marriage, but in marriages where your marriage may be an influence, good or bad. Where your marriage may be an influence in the lives of your kids, friends, grandkids, nephews, nieces. Talk about those kinds of things. Recognize God's got a blueprint. Now, if I stick to it, it's going to work. If I don't, it may. It'll be in spite of me, not because of me. And I hope, well, I hope we want better things for our homes, better things for our marriages than just... I'm so sick of mediocrity. In the kingdom, in relationships, in homes, in families, I'm so sick of, that's as good as it's ever going to get. I'm just, eh, that's just, eh. Aren't you tired of that? Don't you long for something deeper and, 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 and better and, boy, looking more like him than you've ever known? That's what he wants for us. He wants those kind of marriages for us. He wants those kinds of homes for us. You know why? Because family matters to him. It matters to him. The very first thing that ever happens in Scripture is family. The very first thing that ever happens when Jesus comes to start his ministry is family. The, the, the very first illustration that Jesus uses between himself and the church is, is this bride and groom relationship. It's family. You, you think that's important to him? It's important to him. It matters to him. And it ought to matter to us. So I hope as we journey together here, um, we're going to hear some hard things. Um, but they're true from, their, from God's word. And I hope they'll, they'll change the way we think and the way we interact with each other. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Crosspoint Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.